From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up on this Wednesday edition. Make no mistake about it. This is genuine radicalism. They want to turn the Senate into the House. They want to make it easy to fundamentally change the country. That was Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell yesterday responding to Democrat Leader Chuck Schumer's threat to change Senate rules to make way for a strictly partisan bill that will expand federal control over elections. Can Republicans in a 50-50 Senate hold off this effort that will not only fundamentally change the Senate, as the Senate leader said, but fundamentally change the nation with legislation that Democrats seek to push through while they have control? We'll talk with Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson in just a moment. Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall will be here to preview Friday's Supreme Court hearing on two of President Biden's vaccine mandates, the one we discussed yesterday, the mandate for health care workers at facilities that receive federal funding, and the bigger of the two, the OSHA-enforced vaccine mandate on private employers. And speaking of the coronavirus, would someone please give the president some updated talking points? There's no excuse, no excuse for anyone being unvaccinated. This continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So we got to make more progress. That was the president yesterday, another bizarre message from the White House claiming this present spread of COVID is the fault of the unvaccinated. But that's not what the actual numbers say. We'll talk about it with Dr. Jay Barachadia professor of medicine at Stanford University. Also asked about what President Biden will say tomorrow, January the 6th, when he goes to the Capitol, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said this. On Thursday, the president is going to speak to the truth of what happened, not the lies that some have spread since, and the peril it has posed to the rule of law and our system of democratic governance. Amazing, those words coming from the Biden administration. Well, the president and his Democratic allies have utterly milked the January 6th riot at the Capitol for all they can, trying to frighten the American people into embracing their radical agenda. But it was not what happened at the Capitol one year ago, as deplorable as it was, that poses the greatest threat to our republic. It is the unconstitutional overreach and unbridled pursuit of raw political power at any cost by the left that endangers our nation. We're going to talk about that and his new book, Chief's Chief, with former President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, later here on Washington Watch. You won't want to miss that. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you miss anything, you can catch it later, TonyPerkins.com. Today, we want to welcome our new partner, radio stations in Evansville, Indiana. Thank you especially to Floyd Turner, the president of Thy Word Radio Network, WBGW, airing on 1330 AM and 1025 FM in Evansville and the surrounding areas. You can now tune in weekdays right here at 4 p.m. Central Time. And for you night owls, you can catch us at 1 a.m. for a rebroadcast. We are thrilled that you're a part of the Washington Watch family. And one more note from today stands on the word, Genesis 11:4, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, as the Tower of Babel makes clear, our motives matter. To join us on this two-year chronological journey through the Bible, go to frc.org slash Bible. You can also join me each morning, 844 a.m. Eastern Time on Facebook for highlights of our daily journey. 
All right, yesterday, both Democratic Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema of Arizona reiterated their opposition to any effort to get rid of the legislative filibuster. That's at 60-vote threshold, uh, which uh, is required to proceed to legislation. But the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he is going to get rid of it. He's going to change it by January the 17th. But Senate Democrats are still hoping their colleagues will give in to the pressure and join them in deploying what is called the nuclear option. Now, this could be a political Armageddon. The Senate Republicans could use Senate procedures to bring the chamber to a grinding halt. But the question is, will they do it? With me now to talk about this and more is U.S. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. He serves on the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. Senator, welcome back to the program. Well, Tony, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Senator. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us. And I you know, what we're talking about a lot of issues that you've talked about. You've been up uh, fighting this mandate. Uh, but I want to focus on this agenda by Chuck Schumer to change the Senate rules. Now, they're saying, oh, this is going to be very narrow. It's only to deal with uh, election issues. But we know that's not true. They will ram through, based upon the pressure from their base, every left-wing idea that they have been championing in the last decade. Well, it would be a slippery slope, and let's uh, pray that uh, Kirsten Cinema and, and Joe Manchin uh, hold to their word that uh, they're not going to participate with it. I can pretty well say that Republicans are absolutely unified. Uh, we're, we're certainly going to maintain the Senate. Uh, the, the way it's really protected our democracy from radical agendas in the past, um, where you have a, a mere majority trying to rush something through. And the Senate should be that that saucer beneath the cup of tea to kind of cool the passions of the time. Uh, it should be noted that uh, I think more than 20 Democrats, I can't remember the exact number, joined uh, Susan Collins in a letter, I think it was in 2017, when we were under pressure as Republicans to get rid of the filibuster so we could ram through an agenda. Uh, Republicans weren't signed up with that, but it's interesting that more than 20 Democrats signed a letter urging us not to do that. Now, there really was no risk. Republicans did not support eliminating the filibuster because we realized how important it is to the maintenance of our democracy and, quite honestly, to form and force consensus on any kind of major piece of legislation. But Democrats, uh, it's really their definition. They're just hypocrites, and they're being hypocritical right now. But I, I feel very conf fairly confident that we'll beat back this attempt by uh, Leader Schumer. Now, this senator is not the first time that this threat has been made. It's like, you know, look, if you don't play with us, we're going to take our ball and go home. Last spring, we saw the same threat to eliminate the uh, the legislative filibuster. But at that point, uh, Leader Mitch McConnell warned that he could use a procedural move to grind the Senate to a complete halt if Democrats deployed this nuclear option. Here's a clip of what the senator said in March of 2021. If the Democrats break the rules to kill Rule 22 on a 50-50 basis, then we will use every other rule to make tens of millions of Americans' voices heard. What tools do Republicans have uh, as an option if the Democrats go forward with this? Well, again, the U.S. Senate runs on consent. And so you can just grind the, the process to a halt by really failing to consent to virtually anything. And so, you, you, you again, you could really slow down the Senate. In the end, there are things you, you simply can't prevent. Depends on how Chuck Schumer plays the thing. Uh, it, it wouldn't be pleasant. It's, it's, I don't think it's going to be necessary. 
Uh, I've been very appreciative of what Joe Manchin, he's, he stood strong. He, he did not agree with the Build Back Better plan, and he finally uh, pulled the plug on that. And uh, I have no idea really what uh, Chuck Schumer is trying to pull here. Uh, if, if you're trying to get Joe Manchin on board, this is a really uh, bad way of doing it, treating him and Kirsten Sinema so shabbily. Well, they're putting immense pressure, and I mean, obviously, I mean, I would say obvious. It, it appears to be obvious that uh, Chuck Schumer and others uh, are working with outside groups to put tremendous pressure on senators, on these two senators, to try to get them to uh, to bow to what the Democrats want to do and changing the rules, just as they tried to do with the build government bigger plan that you mentioned. Well, they could be playing to their base, but now let's face it, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, they, they report to their constituents. And I don't think uh, the constituents of West Virginia want to sign on to Chuck Schumer's radical agenda. I, I doubt the citizens of Arizona want to either. So yeah, having that support of your constituents, I'm sure will kind of help uh, provide the, the uh, backbone for both uh, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin to hold strong on this. Well, I would agree with you that Senator Manchin has stood firm on a number of issues, despite the pressure that has come from uh, the president and from the Democratic base. Uh, are you concerned that, that there may be kind of a fallback where, as Chuck Schumer and others have talked about, a narrow carve out for the elimination of the filibuster just on election related reform measures? I mean, I hope not. That's always a risk. Um, but I think Joe Manchin is smart enough to realize what a dangerous slippery slope that would be. I and mean, let's face it, Harry Reid, there's only one nuclear option. And Harry Reid used it. That was to change the rules with a, a mere uh, majority vote. That created, for example, the, the opportunity for Republicans when uh, we needed to uh, confirm a Supreme Court justice to do the same thing with the Democrats, to, to at least make equal uh, the 50-vote rule on judicial appointments. Uh, so right. it would be a slippery slope. Uh, Harry Reid did a great deal to, to harm this institution. Uh, hopefully Joe Manchin uh, will, won't support Chuck Schumer in doing it further. Senator Johnson, that's an extremely important point to be made, that the, the Democrats took the first shot in eliminating for uh, executive appointments and for lower courts. The Republicans then followed suit because a precedent had been set when it came to the Supreme Court. So uh, if you follow that, um, you know, that history, if the Democrats, this is, they, this is important to their base, this uh, federal takeover of elections, and so they do a carve-out... What's then to present, prevent the Republicans uh, when they hopefully retake the majority after the next, next election uh, to put something that is important to conservatives uh, in this carve out of the filibuster? There'd be nothing to prevent that. And that's the danger of it. Uh, what you don't want is you know, major policy changes, you know, basically being like a ping pong ball, you know, going right. from one extreme to the other back and forth every two years, that'd be incredibly damaging for our democracy. So the, again, the, one of the functions the Senate performs is, is that cooling off period where you really should uh, deliberate, debate, discuss, particularly major pieces of legislation, and that the 60-vote the threshold, which people refer to as the, as, the, as the filibuster, requires consensus building. And that's, yeah. that's a good thing. I agree, and I, I am 100% with you on that. In fact, when, uh, as you made reference to earlier, when the Republicans, there was pressure to them to change that uh, legislative filibuster rule, 
And, uh, you know, there were there were some Republicans that were going along with it, but most were not. I did not support it. I, I agree with you. I think it is important to to try to reach consensus or if you can't reach consensus, maintain the status quo, because I look at what our allies and even our adversaries look at us uh, internationally. If we're constantly changing and there's no stability, that puts us in a very precarious situation. There were very few Republicans that even talked about uh, changing the filibuster. Maybe some members in the House uh, that I don't think really appreciated uh, the function of the Senate. But, you know, Republicans have been very consistent this because we realize the danger that that would cause. So it's the Democrats that have always pushed the envelope here. Uh, What we did with the Supreme Court, by the way, is really went back to history where uh, it never really required until Chuck Schumer arrived in the Senate and, and really borked Robert Bork. Or actually, right. he might have been a House member at that point in time. I wasn't here. It was really Chuck Schumer that, that led the effort to really change the way the Senate operated when it came to confirmation. So th- there may have been uh, opposition nominees, but senators in the past, even though they could have uh, required a 60-vote threshold, never did. So, for example, Justice Thomas, he, he, was, he was not passed. He, he didn't require 60 votes to, to be uh, confirmed. Uh, Chuck Schumer has blown up the Senate. Harry Reid did it again. Not, not Chuck, Chuck, Chuck Schumer wants to build on that uh, uh, record of, of destruction. Well, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good that that's not going to happen. Well, I'm, I'm glad because I'm very hopeful that the uh, Republicans in the Senate can hold the line, not just for the Senate, but for the sake of the nation. Senator Johnson, out of time. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great day. Stay healthy. All right. Take care. All right, coming up, we're going to take a look at what's going to be before the U.S. Supreme Court on Friday. Don't go away. We're back with more after this. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, We'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview, The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the Church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why Scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the Center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org slash subscriptions. 
At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, according to the Biden administration, OSHA's requirements on businesses with 100 or more employees is not a vaccine mandate. It's not a mandate because it allows employers to choose whether to require employees to be vaccinated or to be required or to require unvaccinated employees to mask and to test. Now, when asked yesterday how employers can utilize the testing option when there's a shortage of tests right now, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said this. Remember what the objective is here. The objective is to make workplaces safer, to provide more security to people. Uh, if you look at the uh, data that just came out this morning, JOLTS, that was a shout out to Bloomberg. They'll get that, they'll get that reference. Um, data that came out today, there are still many people who are fearful about going back to work. That is one of the reasons why it's important to put in place these requirements. Well, if people are afraid to go back to work because of COVID, will vaccine mandates make people less fearful considering that the Omicron variant, which is by far the most dominant right now, can spread to both the unvaccinated and the vaccinated? This might be one question that pops up when the Supreme Court hears oral arguments this Friday over the mandate on these private employers. With me now to talk about this is one of the state attorneys general who is challenging the mandate in court, Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall. General, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tony. Always good to be with you. Well, let's start off with your reaction to the White House press secretary's remarks. What do you think about that? Uh, it's par for the course. I mean, to somehow argue that this isn't a vaccine mandate, when that's exactly how the president described it on September 9th when this was first announced. But let's also recognize the Supreme Court likewise has the case involving health care workers as well that's going to be before the court on Friday. And that's an absolute mandate for vaccines. There's no testing exception to it at all. So what are employers to do right now where there's this shortage of tests? And so if is it truly an option? And by the way, it's not an equal option either, because under the mandate, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I am, General, the OSHA requires that employers give time off to individuals to get a vaccine, but makes no accommodations for those that have to get tested. In fact, uh, the employee can be forced to pay for the test. 
no, not only can be forced, will be forced to be able to pay for the tests. And again, it's a reflective of the coercive nature in which the Biden administration has dealt with this. Uh, but yet it's, again, not surprising you had a president that uh, before he took office said that federal mandates for vaccines were inappropriate. You heard him two weeks ago discuss the fact that there is no federal solution uh, to dealing with this issue. It's one of a state matter. Uh, but yet they continue to push these issues moving forward. Frankly, we've been very successful, all but one decision with the Sixth Circuit thus far in fighting the OSHA mandate, the healthcare workers, the Head Start victory that we just had last week, uh, as well as what we've seen on federal contractors. And very confident that the Supreme Court will see through the fallacy of the Biden administration's arguments and restore us to this idea that we're a republic where liberty matters and not one where we're akin to a monarchy in which uh, one rule can dictate what goes on across our country. Yeah, I think you're right, General. I think the scoreboard, when you look at it, uh, the, the numbers are for the state attorneys general who are defending the Constitution. So far, no points for uh, the president in his mandate. What are some of the arguments you anticipate uh, hearing Friday from the Biden administration defending these mandates? Well, I think it's what you heard from the White House spokesperson just recently, that somehow or another this is going to provide uh, greater safety, for example, in the workplace, when the reality, Tony, is there's a greater risk of contracting some form of COVID from the, the dinner table at home with family or around friends than there ever is in the workplace itself. These are arbitrary rules. I mean, why 100 employees, for example, rather than 75? Uh, but they're going to, to somehow or another, allege what uh, we've heard come from at least the Sixth Circuit. This really isn't a mandate, but it's an option. But the reality is that this is placed on employers. We're going to lose individuals that we need in the workplace, whether they're working with kids and Head Start, whether they're healthcare workers that are working with those who need uh, valuable care provided by Medicare or Medicaid, or whether it's our businesses that I've heard from across Alabama and across this country who are saying it's tough enough for us to be able to get workers to work now. We're going to lose many if they're required to be vaccinated. Well, that, that's an extremely important point to be made because that's happening, and it's happening in particular in the healthcare field and, of course, first responders as well. But when you look at what the president, or the Biden administration, I should say, has claimed that this is about keeping Americans safe and healthy, that's why we're doing this. But when you're driving healthcare workers out of the profession, creating shortages, how is that making Americans healthier and safer? That's the great question. It's one that, frankly, they can't answer. You know, the reality is they're making it more difficult uh, for employers to be able to provide valuable goods and services to those in this country when we see shortages from the supply chain being so difficult right now to be able to manage to generally being able to provide the essential services that we need throughout our country because we can't find the workers to be able to do it. This policy itself uh, is counterproductive. It's not doing anything to ultimately make Americans safe. And again, it's a very challenge to the liberty interests that we hold dear in this country. General Marshall, one of the arguments most likely to come forward uh, by the government is that OSHA standards routinely require the use of protective controls if employees would prefer not to be subjected to particular health or safety measures. So there's a, they say there's a precedent for making them do things that will protect them. But is there a precedent for making employees inject a foreign substance into their body? There absolutely isn't. And in fact, what we see here is OSHA not relying upon their traditional rulemaking where individuals have an opportunity to provide comment or negative comments to what is being proposed, but instead 
using an emergency standard uh, that requires a finding of grave danger in the workplace itself. If there was a grave danger that existed for employees across this country, then why did the Biden administration wait 11 months to be able to announce it after vaccines became available? Why did they make three months before they issued the rule after President Biden held the press conference on September 9th? The reality is that grave danger doesn't exist and there is no statutory authority for this administration to issue that rule. General Marshall, we wish you the best on uh, Friday. We'll be watching that and listening uh, to the oral arguments. Uh, I hope you and your team uh, have great success. Thank you very much. All right, uh, General Marshall, Attorney General of Alabama. All right, coming up next, new data and findings, I think, uh, make it difficult for President Biden to continue to claim that COVID is the pandemic of the unvaccinated. Time for him to get some new talking points. We'll get a second opinion on uh, all of this after the break with someone who is a doctor, Dr. Jay Barachadia. Find me next for that interview. Don't go away. is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. This is Washington Watch, and I'm Tony Perkins, your host. The website is TonyPerkins.com. In an updated report published yesterday, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimated that the Omicron variant made up about 
4% of new COVID cases in the U.S. last week. Now, that was up from uh, 59% the week before. These numbers are on the rise, not just because the unvaccinated are contracting COVID, but so are the vaccinated. Despite this, President Biden remains committed to his talking points. There's no excuse, no excuse for anyone being unvaccinated. This continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So we got to make more progress. Can anyone really say this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated? I mean, honestly say it is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Joining me now to talk about the problems with this and other talking points being used by the administration is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University and one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, a statement advocating an alternative approach to COVID-19 and the pandemic. Dr. Bhattacharya, welcome back to the program. Great to be here. So what's your take on this uh, pandemic of the unvaccinated remark by the president? I think it's very irresponsible at this point in the pandemic to stigmatize people who are vaccinated or unvaccinated. Uh, Many of the unvaccinated had previous uh, COVID, recovered from it, and actually have better protection against infection than the vaccinated. I don't think either the vaccinated or the unvaccinated should be stigmatized. Uh, and, And I think to call the pandemic uh, that at this point, a pandemic of the unvaccinated unfairly stigmatizes a group of people with no discernible purpose as far as the as public health goes. And doesn't this even further make this more of a political issue than a healthcare issue, which it is? Absolutely. I mean, it absolutely does. I mean, I think um, if you think about uh, about how one should approach this as a uh, as a in a, from a public health point of view, it should absolutely be deep depoliticized. Public health is not actually not in, at least in, inherently a political topic. It's a topic that affects every American, but every world citizen, regardless of your political uh, uh, and and to to use the pandemic the way that uh, President Biden seemed to be doing uh, yesterday as a way to gain political points, I think is a big mistake. Um, it, it, uh, it's, and we've seen this, unfortunately, through much of the pandemic. It just uh, undermines confidence in public health and reduces the ability to produce, uh, to provide good information, trustworthy information that people will take seriously. And, and just another disclaimer for those that may be new listening to the program. I I'm an advocate for those that want to get the vaccine. I think the vaccine makes sense, uh, depending upon what you and your health care de- de- provider decide, but not what the government tells you. I'm opposed 100 percent to mandates, but all in favor of people who need the vaccine getting it. Now, along those lines, yesterday in his remarks, the president also talked about children and said what's best for them is vaccinating them. Is this what kids need the most right now is getting them vaccinated? He also said if you're uh, if you should keep people who are unvaccinated away from your children. Uh, it's, it's so unfortunate. I mean, I think um, what kids need most now is normal life. We have deprived that of them of of normal normal life interactions with other kids normal school we filled their lives with fear and it's it's a mistake we should not ever have done that uh uh, the, you know, the, and you may have a child that needs the vaccine. Uh, generally speaking, I think the vaccine is less warranted in children than it is in older people because children have so li- low risk of severe outcomes if they were to get COVID. Um, uh, so it's it's not it's not clear that I mean it's something that should be left up to the medical provider and the right. and the parent, right? Uh, uh, so the, the, it's and it's very COVID is very far from the most important threat 
to the health and well-being of kids. I wish he'd gone up there and said uh, that if the, for the most important thing for the health of your kid is to get back to normal life. Let your kid well, start being kids again. It's a really good point, Dr. Barchardi. I want to ask you that question. At what point, I mean, we're almost, what, two years into this? At what point will we realize we're just going to have to coexist with this? We're going to have to learn how to deal with this as we have the flu. I mean, we've had, uh, we've been at that point a long time now. Uh, we should have been telling people uh, about tools to get back to to to, 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 uh, to get back to normal life almost from the beginning of the epidemic. Um, I think, uh, especially now, now that we uh, first are in the have a uh, have basically, I think we've dis disabused of ourselves of the illusion that we can protect ourselves from getting COVID. I mean, Omicron, if you, that was true before Omicron, but certainly with Omicron, I don't think there's anyone out there that should harbor the idea that they're not going to eventually encounter COVID. Um, uh, one final one final question for you. you made reference to the natural immunity that's out there by those who have had previous infections. Is there greater elasticity for those who have the natural immunity as opposed to the vaccine as we're seeing as we're seeing these different variants come along? I mean, I, I think uh, Omicron seems to evade both natural immunity and the vaccines in terms of getting infected. Uh, lots and lots of people who were previously infected and also lots and lots of people who were vaccinated are now getting Omicron. But what they're finding is that the severity of the disease is much, much less than the previous infections were. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, we're, the disease now is defanged. We've decoupled cases from, uh, from severe outcomes. It is far past time to get back to normal life now. I, I am with you on that, Doc. We got to get back to uh, life as, as, well, I'm not sure there is a normal. Even <laughs> if it's a new normal, we need to get back to it. Uh, Dr. Barachadia, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to talk with you. Thank you. All right, folks, coming up, I'll be joined by former President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, whose new book gives a candid account of the final year of President Trump's first term. Also going to be talking about how the, the Democrats are using January the 6th to scare Americans into a, embracing their radical agenda. How should we respond? We're going to talk about that next with Mark Meadows. Don't go away. More Washington Watch right around the corner. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. 
Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Check it out. Lots of resources there for you. In fact, if you missed any of the program, it's archived right there at TonyPerkins.com. When Mark Meadows became President Trump's chief of staff on March the 6th, 2020, unemployment in America was at an all-time low. And the gas prices, by the way, were pretty low, too. And the stock market was at an all-time high. Then COVID hit, and the economy, as well as the rest of the country, came to a uh, screeching halt. In his new book, Chief of Chiefs, that uh, came out just last month, Mark Meadows gives a candid account of his 10 months in the White House. He joins me now to talk about this on the eve of the January 6th riot at the Capitol that the left is trying to use to define the presidency of Donald Trump and to scare Americans into embracing their radical agenda. Mark, welcome back to Washington Watch. It is great to be back with you, Tony, in this new format. And and obviously, as we look at uh, January 6th uh, coming up, you're right. It's it's being used, uh, sadly, uh, in in a way that is designed to s- scare the American people, uh, not make the capital more secure, and uh, and when we look at that, uh, it is really all about trying to make sure that uh, January sixth defined what uh, President Trump and his entire four years was all about. When you and I both know that that's not the case, uh, I don't know that there was a a stronger pro life president that we've ever had in the White House than Donald Trump. Uh, you talked about energy prices. Uh, we went from energy dominance to energy beggars uh, yeah. in uh, eleven short months under Joe Biden, sadly. And so, uh, all of this uh, comes on on the heels of of really just a radical takeover of Washington D.C. So I'm hopeful that in uh, in the uh, weeks and months to come, the American people's voice will will start to be heard again, and uh, and that the midterms and, and the elections coming up, I know that you and I are 
are not necessarily on the political uh, side of the equation, but the voices of the American people uh, certainly will make a difference if, if they're willing to speak up. Well, you and I walked through a, a lot of the uh, Trump administration together. We had many conversations, many late night conversations. I, I think in, in large part, there were really two major factors, I think, in the success of the Trump administration. One was the people he put in place to carry out an agenda that he embraced. I mean, it was it was coming from the top. He he, he embraced a conservative agenda, but he put people in place who shared that with passion, yourself included. Well, we, we did share it, and it was a vision that, honestly, it was all about trying to make sure it got done. But we had a president in Donald Trump that was willing to actually uh, take on great political risk to do things that, that uh, uh, obviously have never been done. I talk about it in the chief's chief. You know, uh, we don't have to look any further than an embassy in Jerusalem, uh, than uh, the, the number of initiatives that put forth to put American families and religious freedom uh, as, as the hallmark of, of what his administration was all about. But putting those people in and around and making sure that their voices were, were heard against the swamp was a battle that was a daily occurrence. That's why you and I had so many late night calls. Uh, uh, you would uh, let me know that uh, of, of some obstacles that uh, were in the way of of getting his uh, priorities accomplished. And sometimes that came from within his own administration. And so it was it was a critical role that you and others played on making sure that the West Wing was not isolated. Yeah, let's talk about that for just a moment, Mark, because a lot of people think, well, you know, he's the president. He could just get it done. But there were pockets of resistance within his own administration, as you pointed to, that made it difficult and was quite frustrating, I know, for you and for the president. Well, there there were pockets, and what would happen is is occasionally you get a phone call from uh, you know like you and I uh, had had our cell phone numbers, and so you might call me and let me know that something is happening over at HHS or or uh, or at DHS or the the State Department, uh, and and it was not necessarily, in fact. Oftentimes, uh, it was not at the direction of President Trump. It was at the direction of some bureaucrat that said, we understand what he wants, but we're going to be here after he's gone and, and we're going to do it our way. And so it was really having to step into that. Uh, you know, I've got one story in the book, Tony, where I talk about the fact that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm watching Tucker Carlson and, and I'm finding out that we're actually paying for gain of function research in a Wuhan lab. Uh, early on and and had to get on the phone with the secretary of uh, of HHS uh, but I'm learning about it in real time as the president's learning about it actually he learned about it in the greatest invention known to man according to him is TiVo about an hour and a half later uh, and called me about it but uh, but it was those kinds of things those battles that happened each and every day uh, that the president was not uh, willing to shy away from what agency did you have or did the president have the most difficulty with? 
You know, it, it's uh, at, at times uh, it was probably more uh, the HHS uh, in terms of the, the tentacles that would go into a number of, of the other areas. We dealt with them quite a bit. Uh, obviously, with the, the COVID pandemic, you were dealing with the FDA, HHS, uh, with some of the the, uh, the monies that were coming in in terms of stimulus. But outside of that, the other big surprising one, uh, and this is not news to you, was the Department of Defense. Uh, I was uh, I was waiting for you to get to that one because to me it's, it's become woke in so many ways. Oh. And you you identified this, you know, whether it's firing of a chaplain, whether it's doing some kind of woke training uh you know at, at a base in Alabama, uh it was just every single day. And and these are the fighting men and women you you served, uh, you know, you know all too well, and yet they are being indoctrinated by a leftist woke kind of philosophy that will will cripple us in the end if it is not addressed. And President Trump was willing to take on, you know, his own Secretary of Defense on he that. He was. Issue. He was. And I just, you know, I, I, I lament the fact that the president didn't have another four years because there were really two agencies, in my view, from the outside that needed uh, a lot of help. And that was the Department of Defense and the Department of Education. Uh, you know, inroads have been made in, in both, but uh, they still, I think of all of the agencies, still had a lot of, uh, you know, if you want to use the term deep state uh, players still left in there. It was, uh, it was very difficult to see the president's agenda move forward in those agencies. Well, you're exactly right. And, and while the Department of Education, obviously, uh, school choice and a number of, uh, of things from a regulatory standpoint were at the top of the agenda, they would just uh, – uh, so many of the bureaucrats have, have just burrowed in so deeply there that, that changing that would be uh, almost impossible. And, and we see that now uh, with this new administration and some of their uh, just really uh, far out uh, extreme leftist ideas that they're imp implementing, not in Washington, D.C., but in a school district near you. Right. Exactly. I, I want to bring up another topic that's in your book. You touch on it. And I think this is very instructive. And I think the president helped really pull back the curtain on this. And this is the leftist agenda of the media. Um, you know, talk about uh, first, I, I want to I'm sure you saw this, but this was a headline from December the 30th, uh, just recently uh, from the AP slow motion insurrection, how GOP seizes election power. This is this is a, this is not an opinion piece. This was a news story about how states are changing election laws, reforming them based upon the what was exposed in the 2020 election, calling that a slow motion insurrection, trying to tie it to the events, obviously, of uh, January the 6th. What was your experience in dealing with the media? Are they fair players? Have, have they gotten the bad rap from conservatives? No, they haven't gotten a bad rap. And and I will say that it was a learning process for me, uh, for Tony, because I, I was used to Capitol Hill and whether there was a reporter that had more of a left leaning or, a, you know, a, a right leaning uh I found most of the reporters on Capitol Hill were were intent on doing journalistic. They may have a little bent one way or another. When I got to the White House, it was totally different. I mean, it was agenda driven, you know, and obviously that is the, the highest priority for anybody in the journalism uh, uh, world is to do the Washington, D.C. and the White House beat. 
but as you looked at that, uh, they would take oftentimes uh, anonymous sources, uh, and I would give them an on-the-record quote, and they still would uh, that was opposite of that, and they would still run with the anonymous sources uh, as being uh, the end-all, be-all with credibility, and in journalism broadly uh, is is really taking a, a, a nosedive. Uh, some journalistic groups are now saying, well, they don't need two sources. Uh, they just need one source. So one person with a particular uh, bent in vendetta uh, can be quoted on uh, you know, any of the major uh, cable news networks uh, as an authority. And, and yet uh, that's not the journalism, uh, even the, the left journalism standards that were adopted uh, as recent as a decade ago. Yeah, I, I, with that understanding, should conservatives trust what they hear and see in the legacy media? <laughs> no, not at all. And, and listen, I'm, I was one that never used the word fake news uh, until I actually got to the White House and experienced it. And, uh, and, and sadly, what we're seeing now is, is really just, um, you know, they're, they're competing with a, a lot of different people on the Internet, bloggers and, and others. And, uh, and, and the problem is, is we consume, we're trusting people. We, we see something and we go, well, gosh, you know, if it's being reported, it's got to be true. Uh, I, I can just tell you there needs to be a, a strong discernment uh, in terms of what you take in and what to trust. And uh, you're right. Donald Trump was willing to call him out at great political risk. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yet uh, he identified a real problem that we have. He did. He, he did expose it. And he really kind of solidified the sides by, uh, and I think it was, um, you know, I, I think it was necessary. It needed to be done. I mean, you and I both have been in meetings and in events where we go back and we see news coverage of it and we wonder, is that the same place I was? I mean, it's, it's completely <laughs> well, different. It never, it never is. It's, it's somebody at a water, water cooler giving a third-hand account of somebody who gave a second-hand account who wasn't at the meeting. And you know it. You've gotten to experience, uh, you know, up close and personal uh, with with personal attacks, uh, you know, against you. And, and what I would say is, uh, those that have tuned in right now, listening, uh, you know, they need to go to a trusted source. And, and sadly, the legacy medias are, are losing uh, that each and every day. All right. Where can folks get a copy of Chief's Chief? Where can they get the book? You know, they can go to their favorite bookstore. Well, some of their favorite bookstores. You know, there's been the whole cancel culture with that as well. They can go online and order the Chief Chief, and uh, I think they'll find it a refreshing look about uh, my time and, and even some time before that uh, when I served with uh, the 45th president of the United States. Uh, it's not one written from the left's perspective. I don't, you know, if, if there's somebody tuned in and they're a, a leftist, I wouldn't recommend they buy the book. You know, on that picture, it looks like you're reading a note on the back of the president. Uh, did somebody <laughs> yeah. stick a say, no, you know, I, kick I, me I, or something? No, I, was, I was listening intently, and uh, I was where I should be, letting him uh, be president and letting me support him in that role. I, I, we're almost out of time, but I've, I've got so many more questions. But w let me just ask you this from a standpoint of, you know, you were right there at the, at the, the seat of uh, the most powerful seat in the world. Given what you've seen in the last year, what's your greatest concern for America? 
Yeah, my greatest concern is is what makes America great is is truly not being held up. Uh, we we've started to embrace uh, socialist uh, policies. We're starting to uh, applaud not just the left. We're applauding uh, leftist policies that are coming out of foreign countries. And and bluntly, I don't know that a whole lot of decisions are being made in the Oval Office. Uh, it it seems like it's more of an activist uh, administration. And uh, in appeasing those uh, on the left uh, with with some extreme um, ways of of, of actually uh, putting forth executive orders that that do not support the family, our faith, or our freedoms. Final question for you, Mark Meadows. Working that closely with the president, I know you knew him beforehand, and uh, before, and that's why he selected you as chief. But what was? the most surprising thing you discovered about the president working for him? <laughs> well, he wouldn't want me to say this, so I'll say it very, uh, he's got a great sense of humor, and he's got an unbelievable compassionate heart. Uh, people don't realize that uh, in the privacy, when there's no cameras rolling, uh, things touch him in a way, and he does something about it whether it's writing personal checks, whether it's making calls to people that have suffered loss. Uh, he loves this country and, and does that in a way that it profoundly impacted me uh, and, and his work ethic. He worked around the clock. He about killed me. I, you know, all this gray hair. I had a little bit before I went to the White House, but it's, it's full, full on gray now. Yeah, you, uh, you told me that many times. You'd never worked harder. Uh, Mark Meadows, yeah. always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us today. Great to be with you, Tony. Take care. God bless. And and thank the American people for their prayers for me in this difficult time. It, I feel them. Uh, and our Lord and uh, Jesus Christ still reigns over the affairs of nations. That's right. And, uh, you know, I'll continue to pray for you as well. Mark Meadows, pick up a copy of his book, Chief's Chief. And you know what he said about the president? I saw that as well. A very compassionate man, a side that uh, many people didn't have the opportunity to see. Folks, thanks so much for joining us today. Check out the website, TonyPerkins.com. And join me in the mornings, 844 a.m. Eastern Time for our Stand on the Word. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, pray when you've prepared and when you've taken your stand. By all means, standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 